This is episode number 41 with Eric Francis, an international author of the book, Now That's a Good Question, How to Promote Cognitive Rigor Through Classroom Questioning, published by ASCD and presenter with over 20 years of experience working as a classroom teacher, a site administrator, an education program specialist with a state education agency, and a professional development trainer. He's conducted trainings at K-12 schools, colleges, and universities throughout the United States and internationally in Canada and Singapore. Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi. I'm a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science of high-performance strategies in schools, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. Each week, we bring you an expert who's risen to the top of their industry with specific strategies that you can implement immediately, whether you're a teacher or a student in the classroom or working in the corporate world to take your results to the next level. Today, we have Eric Francis, the owner of Maverick Education, where he provides academic professional development and consulting to K-12 schools, colleges, and universities on learning environments that challenge students to demonstrate higher order thinking and communicate depth of knowledge. Welcome, Eric. Thank you so much for being here today on Valentine's Day of all days. And also just thank you for all the support that you've given me to my programs and services. It's so helpful to have someone who understands the ins and outs of education in this state. So thank you so much for coming on today and for all the help you've given us over here. Thank you. It's been it's an honor and privilege to be here. I'm, I'm glad you asked me to be on your show, and I'm looking forward to having conversations with you, and um, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. You too, Eric. Well, before I get into the questions that I have designed for you, I wanted to first of all ask you if we could first of all talk about cognition or acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses, because it's in the title of your book. And it's a powerful concept to actually think. It actually takes so much effort. You know, most of us are on autopilot, not thinking. So to think up questions takes so much effort. Can you talk about maybe why you decided to write your book, tying in asking good questions to promote cognitive rigor? Well, cognitive rigor was a concept that was first created by uh, Dr. Karen Hess uh, back in the uh, late 2000s. Uh, what she did was she superimposed Bloom's Revised Taxonomy, which is uh, the primary taxonomy that many um, schools and educators use, especially in K-12 education. They categorize the level of uh, thinking that students can develop and demonstrate. She superimposed it with another academic framework called Webb's Depth of Knowledge. Now, Webb's Depth of Knowledge was originally a, an academic framework that was used to uh, determine the alignment between standards and assessments to make sure that what the objective and the standard, whether it was fully aligned, acceptably aligned, or insufficiently aligned to what the assessments were asking them. And depth of knowledge is based upon not the verb, but what comes after the verb. So what I did was basically because in education, we focus a lot on the verb. We focus on whether students are analyzing, evaluating, creating, and that's considered to be the most desirable cognitive actions we want the kids to have. But also the cognitive actions, remember, understand, and apply also have their value and worth when it comes to teaching and learning. And 
cognitive action verbs are abstract. Like I can analyze light, which is more towards understanding, and I can analyze deep, which is more towards evaluating. So what cognitive rigor does is that it uses depth of knowledge to make the cognitive actions more specific and concrete. But the problem is, is that when you look at objectives, their phrase is imperative sentences. So they sound like directives or commands. The joke I like to say is that you can read your standards like Arlie Emery from Full Metal Jacket, say fully multiply multi-digit numbers using the standard algorithm. And that's what a standard sounds like. But when I phrase it as a question, what that does, it sparks the thinking, it sparks the imagination. It gets kids curious, it gets kids to not only think innovatively, but also inventively and imaginatively. So if I said to you instead of what I just said with that standard, fluently multiply multi-digit numbers using a standard algorithm. Now go do it, here's 25 problems. If I rephrase that to say, how can the standard algorithm be used to, multi to multiply multi-digit numbers? Now I'm asking you a question not to only assess your knowledge, but to get you thinking about it. And if I then said, how could multi-digit numbers be multiplied using the standard algorithm? The difference between the can and the could, the can is procedural but the could is hypothetical. So now I'm hinting to you, there's more than one way. And if I gave you those same 25 problems and said, here's five today, answer that question. Here's five tomorrow, answer that question. Here's five on uh, Wednesday, answer that question. Here's your last five that you didn't pick, that's your test. Now what I'm having the students do is not only demonstrate and communicate their learning, but also choosing which problems they wanna solve to go and answer those questions. So you're putting a lot in terms of student choice, you're putting a lot into student communication. Some people say, well, if you do it that way, then the kids will do the hard ones first so they can get the easy ones for the test. Okay, fine, well, what'd they get away with, an education? You know, th that's a whole different conversation about the emphasis of grades and what grades really mean. But what you want is a deeper learning. You want students not just to respond to a question to show their knowledge, but you want students to think deeply about the question they're being asked. They want them to basically be able to say, okay, this is what I need to go and learn. This is what I need to go and um, discover. This is the type of thing kind of knowledge I need to develop and demonstrate. So what you're actually doing is you're deepening their thinking and their knowledge, or more importantly, their learning, so they can solve any problem that they're presented, not just the 25 that are given to them that day. Because the ones they solve that day, well, if they solve all 25, like Ice Cube sings, today was a good day. If they don't, or like Daniel Powder sings, maybe you had a bad day. Got it. Got it. Well, that's pretty powerful to ask questions and go deeper. Can you think of applying this to the corporate world? How could someone use this perhaps for sales targets, you know, or is there a way to apply questioning to the corporate world? Well, questioning with the corporate world is that basically in the corporate world, you have the answers. You have to raise your profit margin. You have to get this done. Okay, that's the answer. People have to realize that in the corporate world, it's not that we're looking for the answers. We're given the answer. The answer is do it, do it well, and do it better than your competitors. The questions you need to ask is, okay, now what do I need to know and understand to make sure I can do it, or I can do it well, or I can do it better than my competitors. So you're gathering your background knowledge. You're asking your who, what, where, and when. You're going out and get your research. 
you're then asking, okay, how does this now, how can I use this to go and make sure I'm meeting my goals? So now you're starting to think a little more critically. When you think hypothetically and asking, well, what if, which is the greatest question we can ask anybody, it's the most creative question, because if I ask you what if of anything, now you're not only thinking critically, you're thinking creatively, or how could, or using actual true multiple choice, here's three options, which one will work best in a scenario and why, and then the creative, you're asking yourself or you're asking your employees, okay, now how can you develop and design a plan, a product, a project that will help us go and meet these goals? The problem in the corporate world is that, or even in the school world, in the, in the world of academia, and especially when it comes to administrative planning, is that we know what the answer is. We got to get this done. So then we come up with the idea. And then we say, okay, great. Here's the idea. Now, why won't it work? And we all go to the negative. We know what would happen if it didn't work. We know why it won't work. But what if it did? Okay, I deal with that a lot of people when they say, yeah, we need to do this, but, you know, we can't, what, what, what about this, what about that? We know what about this, what about that? We have the answers, we're just vocalizing it. But what if it did work? What if it, we did do it this way? What if we did make that change? Like, we know what will happen if we don't make the change. We know what will happen if we, if we don't take action. But what might happen? That's the most important question we need to ask. What if, what could, how could, and what might? And more importantly, ask ourselves, well, how could I, or if we're talking to a group or class, how could you? Got it. That's profound. If you think about it, you could apply that to all different realms. It could be applied to the sports world too. What if? It's it's really everything. And 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 the thing is this, is that, in our world, we do three things. We innovate, we invent, and we imitate the heck out of it. So we put a lot of emphasis on invention, which is really, really tough to do. That's creating something brand new. There's only a few people who can do that. Innovate is what can I do differently? How can I make this better? How can I shift this? Imitate is, well, how can I do the same thing that somebody else did? If you think about the thinking in the corporate world, if you think about from a world, worldly thinking, let's talk about the United States versus other nations. Because I've, I've worked in Singapore, I've worked in Malaysia. Um, what's really interesting is that in the United States, we do two things. We invent and we imitate the heck out of it, okay? We come up with something brand new and then we replicate it over and over and over again until we beat it down to death. Our foreign colleagues, what they do is they look at it and go, how does it work? Why does it work that way? What if I did this? Should I do this or do that? How can I change the industry by providing a product or a service that might be more effective but cheaper, okay, or give a, provide a different outlet? That's what our foreign colleagues can do, that they basically are great critical thinkers. Creative thinkers, they struggle with it, but the United States, we're amazing creative thinkers because we come up with all these brand new ideas. Let's look at even terms of a film industry. So no one has been able to recapture the imagination and the invention of the American film industry, okay? Then nobody's been able to basically recapture that 
idea of what is the American film. But if you think about it, our foreign colleagues, they have taken it and said, okay, so how can I take that and make it our own? So you look at Bollywood, where basically Bollywood took the Hollywood formula and then made it their own and created this whole other industry. You look at the difference between films that come from Europe and films that come from the United States. They took the original idea of film, the creativity of film, and made it their own. You look at the Chinese movie industry, which is a combination of the drama and even the comedy, and also the action films. If you remember in the 1990s, um, Chinese action films, Chinese filmmakers, they were hot, like John Woo. You know, everybody is shooting guns like this and, 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 and diving and doing slow motion because that's, that was a style that they took back then. Actually, Bruce Lee did that all the way back then with his um, martial arts movies. So what our foreign colleagues do is that they take our inventions and they make it their own. That's innovation. That's not imitation. That's innovation because you're asking, how can I do it better? The thing about the United States is that we invent and then we imitate and replicate the heck out of it. So let's, let's think about this. How many superhero movies have you seen since Spider-Man came out in 2001? So Spider-Man's successful. And then you had all these movies that come out that were just like Spider-Man. They had Daredevil a couple of, uh, about a year later, which was like Spider-Man. And then it started to get a little stale. And then all of a sudden, you had um, Batman Begins come out, and it innovated the style. Then you had Marvel say, okay, we're going to do something different. We're not going to make a series of movies that come in like a part one, a part two, part three. We're going to take all our characters and put them in one movie together. That really has not happened ever in the film industry. Actually, the interesting thing is they actually took that from the Japanese because if you think about the Godzilla movies, that's what they used to do. They used to have all these random movies and put them all together. So that's innovative. The problem is, is because of the risk and reward is that there's more risk than reward when you take, more, when you take risks. And what happens is, is that we imitate the heck out of it until someone else comes along and innovates it. And what's really interesting in film, the people who innovate more often than not are the foreign filmmakers because the United States goes, hey, you're doing this great thing. That's what happened to all the um, Chinese uh, action directors in the 1990s. You're doing all these great things over there. Can you bring that over to America? That's when you had John Woo doing Face Off and you had John Woo doing all these different um, action movies. And then all of a sudden it started to get stale because everybody kept on imitating that process. So. That's what we really need to think about it. We need to think about how can we help our students and our employees be innovative, which is great. How can I make it better? Or inventive, how can I make something new? And if you can't invent, then how can you innovate? Because we just don't want to imitate. That doesn't make, there's enough people out there doing the same thing. What makes you different? That's what I tell a lot of people. It's actually what I tell a lot of people when they say, I want to go into education consulting, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do social emotional learning. Well, everybody out there right now is doing social emotional learning. What's going to make you different? You know, to put it in a personal perspective um, with the good questions, I based my stuff on the essential questions of uh, Jay McTighe and Grant Wiggins and Ted Sizer who actually came up with it and John Larmer who came up with driving questions or project-based learning. So you had all these things thrown out there called what's an essential question? What is an essential question? That's not an essential question. This is an essential question. So now I call them good questions 
and I'm respecting the research saying, thank you. I'm, I'm taking the ideas you have and trying to put it in an innovative way. Same with depth of knowledge. I didn't create it. I didn't invent it. Norman Webb invented it. Okay. Karen has innovated it by superposing it with blooms to make it a measure of cognitive rigor. I'm innovating it hopefully further by saying, how can you use this as a method of instruction and a means of student learning? So the joke I say about it is that I'm actually DOK 3.0 because Norman Webb is 1.0. He came up with it. Karen has a 2.0. I'm 3.0. I will not ever say, yeah, I invented depth of knowledge. I didn't. What I'm trying to do is innovate it. And that's the kind of my philosophy. How can I always innovate something so people can get it and do it well? Oh, I love what you said. There was so much in there. And I picked up the late Grant Wiggins, who inspired me actually with the backward design or thinking with the end in mind. And, you know, just learning from everybody's model, I've always been into frameworks, right? Just having a framework to make things more clear. And that's really where I came up with the framework that, that I chose for Neuroscience Meet Social Emotional Learning podcast with the six competencies attached to neuroscience. So when I heard you talk about the framework of the depth of knowledge that went out there in the beginning, that was someone else's framework, can you give a bit of background of how did somebody create that framework? What did you notice that might have been inaccurate with it? Because really people are just putting their ideas down, but then this framework spread and went into all the districts. Can you give a background of what happened with that? Maybe so we can learn how to produce a framework or something that would be accurate. So the story behind depth of knowledge is that in the late nineties, when we all went towards standards-based education, Norman Webb came up with this process for alignment studies to make sure that the learning expectations of your standards um, were aligned to the learning expectations of your assessments, because we need to make sure that if we're assessing a standard that the uh, items that are assessing a standard are either fully aligned, acceptably aligned, or insufficiently aligned. And that doesn't mean a, a positive towards a negative judgment. It means where are, what do these items assess and how can we use them to, in, to mark and measure where students are in their learning? So he came up with these four levels and they were actually more of a rating scale. They're not a taxonomy. Okay, they're a rating scale. So when you get uh, a learning expectation of the standard and it's coded a DOK3, that's based upon what exactly and how deeply students need to demonstrate their thinking or um, what Mager calls, Robert Mager calls, perform the behavior. So that's what depth of knowledge measures. And depth of knowledge, again, was a rating scale. You don't have to start at a DOK1 to go to a DOK3. In fact, I can start at a DOK3. And, and test and teach at a DOK3. I'm going to talk about that in a second with the model I came up with. So in the 2000s, when a few states started using Webb's depth of knowledge to uh, do alignment studies with their standards and assessments, most people use Bloom's. That's been the emphasis for the last, since Benjamin Bloom came up with the taxonomy in the 1950s, for the last 50, 60 years, 70 years actually, we've been looking at what is the type of thinking students can demonstrate? The problem is, is that cognitive actions, such as ver cognitive action verbs, such that measure thinking, they're highly abstract. 
That's why there's so many different verbs listed under Bloom's taxonomy. Or if you look at Marzano's taxonomy, if you look at the solo taxonomy, there's so many cognitive actions because they differ in their level of thinking, the specific mental effort and processing needed. So when Florida took webs and said, we're going to align our FCAT standards with the FCAT assessments, we're going to do alignment studies with that, people were asking, well, where's the graphic for depth of knowledge? Because they, they interpreted it as a taxonomy because there was level one, level two, level three, and level four. So what happened was, the story I heard was this, that a teacher in Florida uploaded what we come to known as the DOK wheel. And the DOK wheel has four spokes in it. And a DOK one is the top, then it goes with DOK two, DOK three, DOK four. And within those spokes are cognitive action verbs. The problem is, is that depth of knowledge is not about the verb. It's about what comes after the verb. So if I said to you, describe the characteristics of metamorphic, sedimentary, and igneous rocks, that would consider to be a DOK1 because all you're doing is recalling information. That's DOK1. A DOK2 is would be describe what distinguishes metamorphic, igneous, and sedimentary rocks from each other. That's a DOK2 because now I'm using uh, concept skills and basic reasoning. I'm using my information to provide examples. A DOK3 is where you think strategically or use complex reasoning supported by evidence. Evidence is key. So if I said describe the stages of the rock cycle and the interrelationships between the, and within the stages of the rock cycle, now it's a DOK3 because I have to think strategically how I can do that. And I can even say by developing using a model, now it's also a three because the things strategically have to do that or use complex reasoning supported by evidence. A DOK4 is when you think extensively. It's really the same cognitive action of a DOK3. But the thing is, the DOK4, you're thinking extensively. So now I'm going beyond the classroom. Now I'm going across the curriculum. Now I'm going deep within the subject area. So I would say, um, Describe how you would address, explain, or respond to a real-world scenario situation using that involves rocks or the rock cycle. Now that's going to take me also an extended amount of time and effort, but that's not actually the, the, the criteria or the determining factor. It's not just only about time. So as you can hear it, it sounds like a taxonomy, but it's not. It's actually a rating scale coding system. Mm -hmm. But somebody made this wheel and uploaded it to the internet. And people found it and they started saying, oh, here's depth of knowledge. And it seemed like another way to do Blooms, because it is. It's actually based upon the Blooms Hot Wheel that was created by Barbara Clark. Karen has talks about this in her book. Um, so in the late 2000s, when Karen Hess was doing her alignment studies and her alignment work with schools, she kept on telling seven people say to her, well, this is just another way to do Blooms. And she kept on trying to point out it's not. So what she did was she made a matrix called the Hess Cognitive Rigor Matrix that superimposed Bloom's taxonomy as rows and depth of knowledge as columns. So the first thing you do is you begin with Bloom. So I look at what my verb is, and that tells me what level of Bloom's it is. And then I need to look at what level of depth of knowledge it is, and that's where it would fit in the matrix. So that's where her cognitive rigor 
uh, concept came up. And the Hess matrix is a great tool. It's a great tool to code and compare your standards, your items, and your assessments. The issue I saw with it was that people were judging, making value judgments. So everyone wanted to be towards the right of the matrix on three or four. And if they found out they were at a one, they're like, oh my gosh, that's not right. I, it's not fair. And then if they're at a two, well, then just don't stay there. It's also because administrators are coming in, they're evaluating teachers on depth of knowledge. Like if they came in a classroom and said, hey, I saw you doing a DOK one today, that's appropriate. Because te- you, you do have to learn at the DOK one level. Wow. I could be focusing on background knowledge today. That's where I'm teaching a DOK one. So what I did with it was that I turned it into an academic model and said, that there are actually blocks of learning, not steps. I, I originally characterized it as steps, but I've mischaracterized that. And really what it is, is a depth of knowledge is about the complexity of the content and the context in which you're going to understand and use that content. So in my visual, what I do is that I represent them as blocks. And I said the top of the block is the DOK bar. That's what you need to reach as a student and as a teacher, you are teaching and testing consistently to the DOK bar, okay? That's the learning goal and the ceiling of assessment. The highest and deepest level and assessment item uh, should evaluate student learning. That's set by the standard. If the students can't hit the bar, then you need to tier the bar where the students are, okay? Now, when I say tier, it's not scaffold. It means you need to move the bar. You need to basically, if the students can't hit the bar, well, maybe you need to move it here. Maybe you need to move it here. Okay, that's where the gap in learning is. Got it. I need to go there. But I need to bring them back up to the bar. And once they hit the bar, you have them go beyond the bar because you're going to raise the bar. So teaching and testing for depth of knowledge are two different things. When I have a standard, I look at that standard and say, okay, that's the highest level a student could and should potentially be assessed. It could be at that level or up to the level. If it's only at that level, then the tests are going to be too hard and you're going to lose the the scope of learning. You're going to lose the measure of learning. So when I test, I'm only testing to that DOK level and I'm testing up to it. But when I'm teaching, it's fluid because I started the DOK bar and if they can't hit it, well, then I got to tear it and then I tear it back up and then I tear up beyond it. So there's a difference between teaching for depth of knowledge and testing for depth of knowledge. Testing is, what does the standard say? Okay, that's the highest and deepest level the kids are going to be assessed. What do the kids need to know and understand to demonstrate that learning at or up to that bar? Teaching is, I'm going to tell you, this is where this is our goal. I'm going to introduce it to you first. You can't hit it? Okay, where are you in your learning? Okay, I found the gap. I'm going to tear it back up because you're going to hit that bar. And once you hit that bar, I'm going to raise it so you go beyond it. So when you created your model, did you consult with other education specialists to make sure that you're accurate with it? And did you receive any criticism with your ideas when you compared them? Well, I did talk to Dr. Webb. He does, you know, he he liked what I came up with. What he really likes is what I call uh, my let's make a DOK where I just compare it to television shows. So when I said a DOK one is like being on Jeopardy 
or who wants to be a millionaire, that's what the learning experience, the teaching learning experience right, is like. Because in a, in a game show, who runs the show? The host. What does the host do? Ask questions. What do you do? You respond with your knowledge. It's really funny because with Jeopardy, it's almost like teaching because what you're doing is Alex Trebek is giving you information, but, he, but it's giving it to you as a clue, and you have to respond back with your information with a question that either asks who, what, where, or when. That's the type of questions you ask at a DOK1 level. So in a DOK1, the teaching and learning experience is like a game show. Teacher's in charge, they present the information, they ask the questions, you respond back, and it's all about the answer. Is it correct or incorrect? A DOK2, I used to say, was like a competitive show like Top Chef or Hell's Kitchen, but then I thought about it and I said, that's actually more of a DOK3, I'll talk about that in a second. But a DOK2, is like a demonstration or how-to show, like Bob Ross, Joya Painting, mm -hmm. or Rachel Ray's 30-Minute Meals. Because mm -hmm. here you have these two people, and they're not just quietly painting, and they're not just quietly cooking, going, ta-da, here's my painting, ta-da, here's my meal. They're telling you, this is what I need to do. This is what you need to do. So at a DOK2, the student becomes the teacher. You want the student telling you, how and why I'm getting my answer, how and why I'm attaining my results. So an analogy I also have it is that I want you to think about um, the Rocky movies. Rocky was the boxer and Mickey was the teacher. So Mickey's telling him from his experience, this is what you do. And Rocky was doing it. That was a DOK one. In, a, in the Creed movies, now Rocky's the teacher and Creed's the student so you're Rocky, you got to tell people, all right, this is what you do with these boxing moves. You're doing it this way, and this is what the outcome is going to be. So you want the student to become a te the teacher. Or you can make it where Luke Skywalker was once the Jedi um, Padawan, and then he became the Jedi Master and trained Rey. So Yoda trained him, and then he trained Rey. So that's a DOK2. The DOK3 is a competitive show like Top Chef or The Apprentice. You're given a task. And that actually is like the corporate world. So what I show is a clip of Top Chef where I say, okay, they say you have to make a ta tackle bar. Here are your ingredients. Now, how are you going to do it? Now you got to think strategically. You got to come up with your own ideas. Use your knowledge. Here, you got the answer. Make a tackle bar. But I need to think strategically how I'm going to do it. And the teacher facilitates, walks around. So how are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? So, and that's the interesting thing about a DOK3 versus a DOK2 because a DOK2 the teacher's not involved. It's highly student-centered. In DOK3, it's still student-centered, but the teacher is now kind of questioning you, challenging you, and you need to defend, explain, and justify or refute what you're doing or someone else did. So it's like being in the boardroom on The Apprentice or when you're on Top Chef, they say, well, in the clip he says they had to make a taco bar, and this guy made tostadas. And the guy said, I said taco bar. He goes, well, tostadas are like a taco, and he justified it. Oh, okay, I can see that. That's a DOK3. So you're given a task. And there's multiple ways to do it. Now, how could you do it? So you're given the answer. It's very much like the work world. Do it. Now, how are we going to do it? DOK4 is like Shark Tank. I've learned my stuff. I can tell you how I use my stuff. I can tell you how and why I could use my stuff. And I'm going to show you what else I can do with it. So I show a clip of a young man who basically wanted to buy a Lego Death Star. So that was a DOK2. How can I start a business to, make it, to get enough money to make a Lego Death Star? DOK1. What are the businesses I can do? He discovered a lemonade stand. DOK2, how can I use make a lemonade stand so I'll get enough money to buy a Lego Death Star? DOK3, how could I make a profit 
where I get enough money to buy a Lego Death Star, but maybe have more money to, to, that I can have at my uh, disposable income. He gets that and he goes, look what I learned, DOK4, he starts his own business. Wow. And that's what Norman Webb liked. Um, and, and Karen has likes that part too. She actually talks about someone else gave her an analogy of it in terms of uh, um, television. So what I even say about the DOK3 to boot also pop culture, DOK3 is like the Hunger Games. What's the goal of the Hunger Games? What's the answer? Survive. How are you going to do it? You got to think strategically. You got to defend, explain, justify, use complex reasons supported by evidence. DOK4, you're Iron Man. So basically you're taking everything you learn and you go, okay, so what else can I do with it? So he took every, remember Tony Stark, he takes everything he learned and basically did something, came up with something innovative or inventive. So that's the way I describe it. The hard part about it is everybody has their impression of DOK and as long as they don't use the wheel, I'm totally cool with whatever anyone comes up with. That's the great thing about this being so concrete yet abstract. We all have our different ideas with it. I'm not saying mine is better than anybody else's. What I'm trying to say is, okay, here's a way that I see it. Here's a way that's helped me. Hopefully this can help you. And hopefully this can help you better understand it, not only clearly, but more accurately, because right now everyone's judging it based upon that wheel and it's completely inaccurate. Got it. I'm just curious because we live what we work through our ideas. And if you were to come into my house, everything's about, you know, is this good or bad for your brain? My kids know, you know, don't eat this because it's not good for your brain. Um, how does this translate into your home life over there? Do you talk to your girls in this way? Does it infiltrate into your life over there? Yeah, it does. My girls now are old enough to say, stop making me a guinea pig for your professional developments. Okay. Stop making me your test subject. And that's the thing, you know, you always, I always try to get my girls to think, I always get, try to get my girls to broaden their horizon, broaden anyone in my family. Um, you know, it's, it's a way of thinking. And people say, well, how do you think this way? I, I credit a lot to my dad. My dad was a great thinker. And it's really funny because I just found a, uh, a history book about him. My dad is one of the unsung leaders of Fred Francis is his name. And he's one of the unsung leaders of the Ameri of the uh, civil rights movement for the disabled. And I just found this history book where this person was describing him. Um, and he compared him. He said he spoke like John Kennedy. I mean, that is a, yeah. I mean, that, that was like, wow, somebody compared my father speaking to John Kennedy. And that was just his thinking. He was just such a critical and creative thinker. And he always asked, well, what if? And he, he always, you know, challenged the, the uh, realities of things. Um, my father was a double amputee. He was a double amputee in a time when people who were disabled, uh, you know, I see all these people now, they're doing all these amazing things and doing all these wonderful things. It's fantastic. And my dad was really one of the unsung pioneers of it. I mean, his wheelchair back in the day was a steel metal wheelchair like a tank. And this guy's dragging his wheelchair up on his, on his back end because he has no legs up the steps of the Capitol building. He's throwing his chair, this heavy chair, into the back of a station wagon when he has to go and drive. He's driving. Um, he did a marathon in his wheelchair. Okay, mm -hmm. He played wheelchair basketball. So when I see all this, I see, you know, my dad is one of the unsung pioneers, but one of the amazing thing about my dad is that back in the seventies in New York, there were these throughway stops and 
they had a hard, they were by, um, owned by the Marriott Corporation and they had a hard time not only hiring but retaining employees and keeping employees responsible because they had to drive from New York all the way up to these throughway stops upstate and sometimes they couldn't get up there. So my dad convinced the Marriott Corporation to hire the disabled, the mentally challenged. He got a government grant with that paid for the transportation and paid for the job coaches that supported these uh, workers. And he said, all you have to do is pay for these uh, people's um, salary and benefits and you'll have a loyal workforce. So he created a whole entire dedicated workforce and it was very successful. So when American Corporation said, well, what else do you have? And my dad said, well, what else do you need? And they said, well, we're having a lot of uh, um, lawsuits from people in the laundry room because they're losing their hearing because of the heavy machinery. This is the late 70s, early 80s. So my father said, well, why don't you just hire the deaf? And they hired the deaf into the laundry room. So that was my dad. My dad was, as much as he was, uh, he was a, worked in a state government for years and he, he worked in a very, very safe and secure position. He challenged people's thinking. He questioned. He, and some people liked him for that and some people resented him for that. Mm-hmm. And I get that too. Some people like it that I can spark and stimulate their thinking. Some people are like, okay, I just don't want to think about this. Why, why are you thinking about this? Because it makes life interesting. I'm looking at the world. I'm watching television. I'm reading the newspaper. I'm surfing the net. I'm always reading, learning, and questioning. And I'm always trying to think of, well, what else? What if? Why? And, and I think that's what we need to do in this world because we need to question why, but we also need to listen to the responses. We also need to listen to why people feel as they feel. At the same time, people can't just say, it's just because how I feel. Feelings are not facts. Give me evidence. Teach me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm wrong. I may not agree with you, but I will gosh darn guarantee you that I will listen to you. And that's also the value of questioning. Questioning is not about what do you know. Questioning is I'm trying to understand you. So please, Respond to my question so I can understand you because we'll either agree or you'll know that I listen to you. It reminds me of that book. Um, I actually have it on my desk, The Four Agreements. Mm-hmm. One of the agreements is don't make an assumption, ask questions because you can look at somebody and make an assumption and then go down the complete wrong path because you've assumed so without asking questions, you really don't know what's real or what the answer is. So it's almost the basis of, um, of getting to the root of something. You've got to be able to ask questions to right. find the truth. But it's also the problem with the way we use questions, because we use questions to challenge and assess knowledge. Okay. So when you, I ask you a question, you know, it, it can be very uncomfortable because all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I should have the answer for this. No, answers come free. I can find all the answers to every question right here. Mm -hmm. What I can't do with that information is think critically and creatively about why that's true. You know, what's the, what was the precedence behind it? What was the causes? What's the consequences? Well, what about this? That that's about us. We can't, we can rely on this for the answers, but this won't tell us what we can do with those answers, why it's the answer. Two plus two equals four, and I can do that on my phone, okay? Mm -hmm. Knowing two plus two equals four 
helps me know that two plus two equals four. But if I ask how condition be used to find the sum of two numbers, such as two plus two, I can basically take that knowledge and I can add any numbers together. And if I have knowledge of addition and rounding, I can justify to you by asking this question, how could addition and rounding be used to prove that two plus two could equal five? Because if I said, what's 2.4 rounded? And you said two. And I said, well, what's 2.3 rounded? You said two. And I said, what's 2.4 plus 2.3? You say 4.7. And I said, now rounded, it's five. Mm. I had someone do that to me in a training because I say, what's important? I said, what's two plus two? And this teacher went five. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, two plus two can equal five. In fact, I'm going to make you make two plus two equal five. And she did just what I did to you. Now I'm in front of hundreds of people and she's trying to, you know, kind of put me off my game. And I, that's, that's the honest truth about it. She's trying to heckle. And so I said, when I did it, I said, wow, what allows me to do that? She goes, that's what happens when you work with triangles. And I said, thank you. I'm going to now go back to my hotel and learn that. But you see what I, she did? Instead of insulting me, she sparked my interest. She sparked mm -hmm. my imagination. She sparked my creativity because I now use that actually in my presentations. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to do with our kids. We teach some boring stuff mm -hmm. and some of the stuff we like and some of the stuff we're not crazy about teaching. But how can we frame this and how can we use questions to get the kids excited about what they're learning? So if I can ask kids and say, how could you graph linear equations and use them to create football plays? Your first response is like, what? And that's what you want. Because if I said graph linear equations to find the distance between two points, if you watch someone's face, their eyes will bow. But if I said, how could you use linear equations to graph to the distance between two points? And how could you use that to create football plays? All of a sudden, your eyes light up, they right. go left, you know, you're starting to think. Yeah. That's the difference between saying, do this, and saying and asking, well, what is this? Well, how'd you do that? Well, why could you do it that way? Well, what else could you do with it? What about this? Is it this or that? That encourages learning. And that's true Socratic learning. Wow. Wow, Eric, this has made me think, definitely. What are you working on now with your depth of knowledge? And if someone wants to learn more, is the best place to go to um, mavericeducation.com or just give an overview of what, what your path is now with all of this? Well, I'm still doing a lot with questioning. Um, I still will do a lot of my book now. That's a good question. I'd like to write the sequel to it. Um, I've actually taken it to the next level. I call it Inquiring Minds. So the first book teaches you how to create the questions. Because here's the interesting thing about questions is that we talk about questioning and inquiry, but we focus more on the inquiry than we focused on creating the questions. We struggle to create questions. We struggle to think that way. So that's what actually the first book's about. Um, a future book is going to be about how you can, what I call, inquire minds. And it's a five-step process. So that's going to be after probably my third book. My next book is going to be on teaching and learning for depth of knowledge. So this is what I've done taken the research of Norman Webb and Karen Hess and molded it into that, what I call that DOK 3.0 or DOK 2020, since we're now in the whole new decade to say, this is the next level. This is the next iteration of it. Respecting the research, honoring the research. You always have to do that. 
you know, you always have to honor who came before you. I think that's sometimes in our profession, what we do is we go, oh, I don't agree with that person. This is the real way it is. No, that person gave a lot and they contributed a lot. And you can take what they're, they're done and incorporate it into your own work and say, and this is how I see it. But thank you for with that research. Kind of what you talked about with Grant Wiggins inspiring you. You're not saying, well, Grant Wiggins, you know, he has it all wrong and I have it the right way. No, it, it's basically you honor the research. Right. So. So getting back to, I know I, I kind of go around a little bit, but I'm working on my book on depth of knowledge. Right now it's called Knowing is Half the Battle, uh, Understanding and Using Depth of Knowledge. It's uh, contracted to come out with Solution Tree. I'm going to publish with Solution Tree International. I'm hoping it'll come out in the fall. If people want to learn more about depth of knowledge, what I do, um, they can visit my website at uh, mavericeducation.com. Make sure you spell maverick correctly. It's M-A-V-E-R-I-K, not M-A-V-R-E-I-C-K. That's the actual word. M-A-V-E-R-I-K. It's named after me and my daughters, Madison, Avery, and Amanda. And I'm also a child of the 80s, so my favorite movie is Top Gun, which I'm excited about the sequel this summer. So I named it after that. So if you go to maverick, M-A-V-E-R-I-K, education.com, you'll find the professional development I do. You'll find blogs I've written. I've written about... uh, questioning uh, and I've written about uh, depth of knowledge extensively um, what it is um, why it should not be used with standards-based grading because now there's a movement to use that with standards-based grading which is very dangerous Um, and and all basically uh, hopefully some uh, helpful resources that will help you um, basically improve and increase the capacity of your instruction and the teaching and learning Wow. Well, Eric, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time today to explain your book, your work, your research, um, and for being on the show today. Um, I really do look forward to the release of your new book and to continue to follow you with this exciting field. You've made me think a lot. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honor and privilege. I'm glad we got we're able to finally do this um you i've known you for a couple of years and you really are really a fantastic person and a really great great presenter when it comes to neuroscience and especially that sel component and i really think you're doing some great innovative things out there you're really telling people it's not just about the emotional component it's about the cerebral component and the cognitive component and what those emotions do to your brain and it's kind of like you and i doing the same thing you're shifting it from a social, to shifting thinking and cognition from a social emotional standpoint. I'm doing it from instructional. And I, we need to find a marriage of both because there's too many people out there right now saying, this is instruction, this is social emotional. The big statement is always Maslow before Blooms. But what can we do to make Maslow with Blooms? And maybe that's something you and I can figure out someday. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 